Hi, my name is Dr. Caroline Batten, uh, and I'm here today for Oxford Fantasy with Tom Corrick, who is the librarian of the Oxford Union Library. And today we are going to be talking about uh, the famous Mort D'Arthur murals in the Union Library uh, and how they have uh, influenced uh, fantasy literature in Oxford. Thank you for being here, Tom. Uh, thank you for having me, Caroline. It's a real pleasure to uh, talk about the murals in uh, in an online context where hopefully lots of people get to see uh, and learn a little bit more about the place. Yeah, absolutely. So I know uh, relatively little about the murals actually. So I, I guess, uh, please start with the basics. Uh, introduce us to these works of art. Okay, so the, the murals were painted between um, 1857 and 1859 um, by a group of guys called the, who called themselves Pre-Raphaelites. Um, the murals themselves are located in the Oxford Union Society, uh, which is a student debating society in the centre of Oxford. Um, and what is now the library uh, was the original debating hall, and the pre-Raphaelites came in and decorated these uh, giant panels uh, in the debating hall themselves. Uh, so the pre-Raphaelites themselves were um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who was an artist. Uh, you had Valentine Princep, who was also an artist. Uh, John Hungerford P Pollen, who was a fellow of Merton. Uh, you had William Morris and Edward Byrne-Jones. Uh, they're both undergraduates of Exeter College, um, and they also went on to become successful artists in their own right. Uh, Rodham Spencer Stanhope, uh, who was at Christchurch. Uh, Arthur Hughes, who was also another artist. And then you had William and Britton Riviere, who were professional artists who came in uh, and sort of finished the job, which we'll talk about a bit later. Uh, Morris and Byrne-Jones are kind of the, the bigger names, as well as Rossetti. Um, they came into contact with Rossetti, uh, who was already you know, a well-established artist by this point. Um, they came into contact with him at evening art classes, uh, and they kind of collected the rest of the team via associations with this sort of Victorian art world. Um, so with the exception of William and Britton Riviere, um, these guys all basically formed the, the second wave of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Um, there had been a first wave a few years prior, which kind of lost momentum. And this, uh, this project really kick-started the, the second wave of the pre-Raphaelite movement. Hmm. I didn't actually know that, that, that the, the sort of murals united the second wave of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. Yes, so there was a few of the original uh, first waves, such as uh, Holman Hunt, who kind of took one look at the project and said, absolutely no way, but uh, good luck with that. Uh, and luckily, luckily things turned out quite well. Um, but yeah, so this is definitely sort of a, a catalyst for that second wave of the pre-raps. So, I mean, when we talk about how they were made, um, you know, Rossetti was originally commissioned to paint um, a, a large scale project for the Oxford History Museum. Uh, he was meant to paint uh, Newton gathering pebbles on the shores of the ocean of truth, uh, but he wasn't really keen on that idea. And his friend, uh, Benjamin Woodward, who was the architect of the Oxford History Museum, uh, basically said, well, I've actually got this other project on the go. And that other project turned out to be the debating hall for the Oxford Union Society. Uh, so Rossetti came over and had a look and said, yes, this is, this is kind of the one for me, really. Uh, this is what I'd like to, uh, to really sort of do to make my mark. Uh, on the uh, on the sort of the scene, um, I think a large part of that is because you have this sort of Arthurian um, almost obsession for the pre-raphs, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, and the hall itself is very much modelled on a sort of um, a medieval banqueting hall, uh, a meeting sort of Victorian uh, Venetian Gothic as well. So it's a very unique shape. But I think Rossetti must have seen it and just thought, "Aha, 
we've got a banqueting hall here. Um, so you can see in this picture here that it's uh, actually broken up into a series of bays um, and they just lend themselves, the space lends itself really well to sort of um, showing the, uh, the depictions of the Arthurian myth. However, um, you know, these, these guys are relatively inexperienced um, in terms of sort of doing large scale projects like this. Uh, whilst Rossetti had a, a background in painting, um, he didn't really have a background in painting on uh, buildings or fresco style. Um, and his, uh, the rest of the cohort certainly didn't, you know, some of them were still undergraduates at this stage um, and some of them had only ever sort of painted on canvas really. Um, so we can see here, this is Rossetti's uh, sort of uh, depiction of Sir Lancelot's vision of the Holy Grail. Uh, and you can see down here um, on the bottom right is a sleeping Lancelot. And in the center of the actual sort of panel itself, is um, Guinevere uh, stopping him from entering uh, the sort of the personification of the Holy Grail. And what I've done actually in the other sort of panel in the bottom right is highlighted the, the brickwork that's coming through. And to give you an idea of how little they actually prepared the surfaces uh, and how remarkable it is that we still actually have these uh, surviving on our walls, you know, some 150 odd years later. Um, the, the actual the physical aspect of the painting um, is, you know, they, they did very little groundwork in preparing the actual site. And um, because the building was so new, uh, it hadn't fully dried out. So what ended up happening was the the minerals from the brickwork actually seeped through the uh, the paint because it was pretty much bare paint that they put straight onto the walls. They didn't lay out a, a plaster or anything. So it's, uh, it's not technically a fresco. Um, I think it's a, a form of distemper was what they actually used. Um, the contemporary accounts tell us that these were really, really vibrant murals when they were first finished. Um, the sort of the heavy influence was, um, you know, medieval illuminated manuscripts. And according to contemporary accounts, you know, they very much resembled these. Um, apparently, they really sort of, the color really popped off of the, uh, the wall. And there's lots of fine detail and stuff, which has kind of been lost over time. Um, so yeah, it's another, another example of this sort of deterioration here is the, the death of Arthur. So I don't know if you can see my cursor here, but you can see in the center, you've got Arthur having um, defeated his nemesis Mordred in the final battle. He himself was gravely wounded. Um, and here you have them casting Excalibur back into the lake. Um, and you can see it's, it's very, very tricky to make this out, but apparently this is one of the more stunning murals at the time. But given the, uh, the dark colors and the, uh, the poorly prepared surface, it's, you, know, you can see here that it's, uh, it's really quite tricky to make out just exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll come back to this as, as we sort of make our way through. Um, right, so one of, one of your questions was uh, you know, explaining a little bit about who the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood were and their sort of their gu guiding artistic principles. Um, so here we've got a lovely shot of the, uh, the Rossetti mural as well, um, putting in a bit more context. Um, as I said, this was the, the second wave of the Pre-Raphaelites. Um, so the first wave consisted of William Holman Hunt, um, John Everett Millay, uh, Rossetti himself, and a couple of others. And they started in 1848. Uh, the second wave included you know, Edward Byrne-Jones and William Morris and more. And these, these ones that sort of ended up uh, painting in the, uh, in the library. Um, these murals represent probably the most important collaboration between the pre-Raphaelite artists. You know, I, I mentioned that this was very much the catalyst for change. Um, and they've never really worked together on such a large scale project since. Um, and also these are the largest paintings ever done by the sort of collective. 
Um, the pre-Raphaelites themselves, uh, they were mainly concerned with producing what they perceived as sort of ideal beauty. Um, so abundant details, lots of intense colors, um, quite complex compositions. Um, there's a heavy emphasis on sort of nature and pastoral imagery as well as uh, sort of medieval mythology. And the term pre-Raphaelite itself comes from the fact that they believed that any art produced after Raphael in the 15th century had become sort of too mechanistic and academic. Um, it, pro it became dominated by um, you know, the, the establishment and you know, the, the Royal Academy of Arts, especially for, for these guys at their, their period, uh, the Royal Academy of Arts have really come sort of dominate the cultural scene. And the pre-Raphaelites are more concerned in pushing back against that. Um, I think there's also an element of sort of anti-industrialization um, as well. Um, and that really ties in with Morris's later work as well, which I'll probably touch on further on in this, in this talk. Mm -hmm. um, is, there, is there anything you'd like to sort of chip in there with Caroline? Or? Well, I think what, what interests uh, Oxford fantasy audiences about the Pre-Raphaelites is that their sort of interest in the medieval really inspired uh, writers like Lewis and Tolkien uh, as they, in their approach to the medieval, right, in, in their sort of idealization of the medieval, and, and so sword and sorcery fantasy, uh, in a way, bears the hallmarks of the pre-Raphaelite obsession with Arthuriana, um, because it's, you know, this, this is where, why we have sword and sorcery, right, rather than, you know, uh, all of our fantasy being set in ancient Rome, uh, or whatever, right, the sort of pseudo-medieval atmosphere of fantasy owes a lot to this movement. Yes, absolutely. Um, let's let's take a deep dive into showing you um, some of those swords. Uh, yes, uh, so the the the, the arcs of murals are, are basically um, based around um, Mallory's Mort d'Arthur uh, and that depiction of the Arthurian myth. So here we can see um, John Hungerford Pollen's depiction of um, Arthur receiving his sword Excalibur uh, from the Lady in the Lake. Uh, there's some fantastic, uh, in the background you can see there's just a real menagerie of animals. Uh, so there's quite a lot of artistic license here. My favorite thing is kind of on the right hand side, you can just make out the hooves of the donkey that they presumably rode in on. Um, legend has it that just beneath that, which looks suspiciously like a rock, is actually a wombat because uh, Rossetti was uh, obsessed with wombats and this was sort of seen as a little Easter egg. Uh, whether that holds weight or not, who can say? Um, but here you can really see, you know, this is the, the sort of the quintessential thing of, you know, you've got the lady in the lake, you've got the arm coming up, you've got the big massive sword and you've got Arthur stooping down to collect it. I mean, it's, it's, it's an iconic um, part of the whole, the whole mythos. Uh, so this is William and Britton Rivière's uh, panel. We don't know which one actually painted it. Uh, they were a father and son team. And these guys actually came in because the pre-rafts didn't finish all the panels. Um, so these, this father and son were professional artists and they, they actually did know what they were doing and prepared the surfaces a little bit better, which is why these are more vibrant. And there's a couple of other panels by them that we'll see as well. Um, but they weren't so up to speed on the sort of, um, the, the detail that was involved in, in Mort d'Arthur and all the sort of knights errant and things like that. Uh, instead, they sort of went with more a, uh, Sort of a Victorian stereotypical view of uh, the Arthurian myths, which is just you know battles, <laughs> essentially. So this is this is one of the few things where there's actually you know a big sword fight because you know they they assume that people you know love seeing sword fights, um, which the pre-rafts themselves uh, had a slightly different take on. 
so this is this is a very early William Morris, probably one of his early earliest surviving paintings. Um, and you can just about see at the top there that there's the ceiling, which has got the sort of the quintessential William Morris print. And that's very much contrasted with what we're actually seeing here. So this is his depiction of um, Sir Tristram and La Belle Isoque, which I've probably butchered saying, um, but it's a it's a classic tale. And um, Sir Tristram himself has actually um, just had a duel with uh, Sir Palamides, who you can see on the bottom left, um, over the uh, the affections of uh, Isolt. Um, it's it's tricky to make out, but you're starting to see some of Morris's um, sort of obsessions with uh, the natural world, um, which fits in with the Pre-Raphaelites, you know, wider ethos. And there's a lot of detail there in those sunflowers and in the, in the forest imagery and things. Um, interestingly, it's believed that um, Sir Tristram in the top right there is actually based on uh, Algernon Charles Swinburne because um, he, was, he was a friend of all theirs and uh, he was certainly around at the time and had come to see the, the murals being painted, um, although he didn't actually really want anything to do with them. But I think they, they added him in as a, as a model. So that's a nice little bit there. Here we have Edward Byrne Jones and we have the death of Merlin. So you'll note that this Merlin looks very different um, to other depictions of Merlin. Um, and this is something that I'll sort of mention as well and the sort of the lack of kind of consistency here uh, between the artists. There was a grand overall plan, but I think that fell by the wayside very quickly. And they kind of just took their pick from the various scenes of the, uh, the legend of Arthur. Uh, so what's happening here essentially is that uh, you've got Nimue, who's on the left-hand side, um, who's she's quite an ambiguous figure. She's sometimes depicted as the Lady of the Lake, um, and she's sometimes seen as an independent character as well. Uh, but feel free to step in, Caroline, if I've got that slightly uh, mixed up. But from what I can tell, that's, that's what's happening there. And on the right-hand side, you have Merlin. And in the centre, you can just start make out there's a well in the bottom centre. And sort of above that, there's actually, and it's quite difficult to make out here, but there's a big stone on a chain. Now, according to this myth, um, Merlin essentially pursues Nimue. And after a while, she gets sick of him and ends up basically banishing him uh, under a rock is the official sort of narrative. But in this case, I think that uh, Jones has taken a bit of license and said that she's going to put him down the well instead and uh, seal him in there. And that's quite an interesting take on the sort of um, the idea of chivalry and things like that, really, especially in a modern context when you have this idea of a um, of, of this lady basically sort of taking it into her own hands and just banishing this really pushy guy into a well, which uh, I think is great, really. <laughs> um, so that that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, there's fantastic detail on Merlin's sleeves. Um, we actually had some infrared photography done um, a while back and the details that came out of that were great. Um, my favorite bit is sort of on the horizon at the, sort of the top is a nice, uh, a golden sheen and it's just really beautiful. And you can imagine how that, again, this must have looked like an illuminated manuscript when it was first done. Yeah. What's very interesting also about the Merlin story is that often iterations of that story say that Nimue traps Merlin in the crystal cave. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've gone in a very different direction here, sort of darker, more personal, uh, less romantic in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when I was doing some reading around on this topic, I, I couldn't really find any of the depictions of a, you know, a well specifically. Um, so it'd be, I'd be very interested to see where Burne Jones got the inspiration for that from. Mm. Um, claustrophobic, 
isn't it? Yes, yes. Um, and it sounds like he deserved it as well. <laughs> um, so this is, this is another sort of um, slightly odd one, really. So this is Sir Gawain and the Three Damsels at the Fountain. And this, I think, by Rodham Spencer Stanhope. And, and this, I think, is where things start going slightly off-piste from the uh, traditional Arthurian myth, because it's not a really well-known scene, this. Um, this is very much a sort of, you know, Sir Gawain, um, his reward for doing a quest is getting to choose a damsel, which is... You know, quite quite problematic in in this day and age. Um, it's it's very much a, a side quest, really. It's not what you think of when you think of the Arthurian myth. Um, so you, you have three ladies here, um, and you have the sixty-year-old, a thirty-year-old, and you have a fifteen-year-old. And you can probably guess by the sort of composition of this which is which. Um, and obviously, Gawain ends up sort of choosing the fifteen-year-old, and um, whatever that entails. Um, but you, you can see here, but the, the sort of the composition here is really interesting because you, Gawain is very much a side figure here, and this ties in the sort of the pre-Raphaelites are obsessed with this, you know, this idea of the ideal beauty, and you know they they've placed this uh, this beauty, you know, right right at the forefront of the image. Um, once you get your eye in, you can see that there's you know really spectacular and really detailed foliage in the background, but. Um, it's all overshadowed by this, you know, this beautiful lady who's depicted. Um, and I, again, the, the knight, and you can just make out a sword there, he's not the centre of this. Um, it's not that sort of chivalric ideal of having, you know, a, a big guy with a sword just taking centre stage here. He's been, you know, literally pushed off to the side. So this, is, this is quite interesting, I think. Um, what have we got next? So, we, you know, back to the death of Arthur. Um, He's about to go off on a, a dusky barge to Avalon, I think was the actual the term. Um, and you can see Sir Bevedere on the left-hand side casting the uh, Excalibur back into the lake. And you can see the, uh, that wonderful glowing arm there. It's slightly uh, confusing composition because it looks like um, one of the center, I think it's one of the queens. Um, it looks like she's casting it off, but it's actually Sir Bevedere on the, on the left-hand side. Um, and yeah, so this is you know his his final death scene. Um, in terms of the way the actual building is laid out, this is um, directly opposite um, when he gets the lady, uh, the sword from the lady in the lake in the first instance. Um, so there was a plan to have these murals sort of facing each other and telling some sort of coherent narrative. Um, we know this from contemporary letters and accounts. But that fell by the wayside very quickly. And, and as we saw, they kind of ended up putting in depictions of side quests and weddings and battles. Um, so here we've got the education of Merlin. Um, again, this is William, William of Britain Riviere. And again, you can really see that they, they kind of knew what they're doing a little bit more in terms of preparing the surface. Um, and this is, you know, this is a far more Victorian classic perception of um, the Arthurian myth. You've got Merlin with a big beard and his big staff. and Arthur gazing up adoringly. Um, interestingly, just above Arthur, you have a little, um, as a sort of, this reminds me of uh, kind of like the ghost at the feast almost, there's a little um, ghostly figure, and it's never really explained what he's doing there. Um, so whether that's previous work coming through or whether it's meant to mean something else, who knows, but it's a, a little detail there. Um, Again, we've got Arthur's wedding to Guinevere. Um, again, this one really pops out because it was William Britton Riviere. Um, so there's, there's quite an irony here in that people come to the Union to see the pre-Raphaelite murals, but what they actually tend to see the most is 
this father and son duo who uh, weren't pre-Raphaelites at all. Um, I mean, Britton Ruggiere in his own right was a very well-established artist, but he was never sort of part of that group. I don't think he had as much of a, um, an ideology behind him. You know, he, he liked to paint and get paid for it, whereas the pre-Raphaelites, part of their whole sort of almost chivalric code, I guess, was doing art for the love of art. Um, you know, they could afford to do this sort of stuff without necessarily being paid. Um, so again, there's a lot of symbolism here. Um, it's a bad omen, apparently, to have a, a white stag charging through your wedding, which sounds like a terrible thing to happen, I guess, even if you're not Arthur and Guinevere. Uh, and you can see the knights looking on quite aghast at this, this thing that's happened. Um, one thing to note is that the perspective is all slightly off here as well. And we think it was Britain who did this because he was the, the son of the duo. And you can see that Arthur's got a very large arm and there's a very prominent um, English shield, which sort of is a bit clunky, um, but presumably they were, they were still learning as they were going on. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, finally, we, we go back to Rossetti's uh, vision of the uh, Holy Grail. Um, so this is kind of the, the centerpiece of it all, really. This is the, sort of the, the most fantastic image. Um, there's lots of uh, symbolism going on here. So you have the, the serpent on Lancelot's shield, and obviously conjuring up images of serpents in the Garden of Eden. Um, I think there's a lot of um, sort of similarities between sort of um, biblical imagery and sort of that Christ-like figure of Arthur um, and his uh, apostles and all, you know, his knights of the round table, and disciples. There's a lot of uh, commingling there in terms of imagery and storytelling. Um, but I, th I think at this point, it's, it's Lancelot's own sin that prevents him from actually getting through to the to the holy grail on the left hand side here because um you know him and guinevere had an affair essentially um but it's uh it's quite a twist on on the classic take in that it's lancelot who's the fallen man here rather than having guinevere as the fallen woman so guinevere is still center stage still standing up um tall slight imageries of Christ on the cross there um, in, that, in that sort of stance. But it's Lancelot himself who's actually the one who's down there in the dirt. Um, and that's really um, unusual, I think, for sort of, especially, you know, as, as we keep saying, for Victorian uh, depictions of Arthur. You know, they're, again, they're these guys who can't do any wrong. But here we have uh, Lancelot on the floor, you know, paying the price, really. Mm. The Pirachalites did love a femme fatale, didn't they? Absolutely, yes. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting selection of scenes, really. Um, I think Rossetti basically had, you know, as I mentioned, he'd conceived the paintings as pairs of sort of complementary subjects revolving around, you know, getting the sword and then having to give the sword back. Um, it's, it didn't really work. Um, there's, a, there's a practical reason why it didn't work as well, because um, essentially these guys had the long vacation to paint this and got too ambitious and just couldn't finish it. Um, Rossetti's um, partner, uh, Lizzie Siddle, was ill at the time in London, and he eventually just went back and had to look after her and didn't return, which is why, you know, we can see that this is unfinished. Um, so this immediately, um, you know, they only really had a few months to get this huge project done um, and the, the the cohesive logic behind it fell apart which you know it, it isn't a big deal in and of itself because it doesn't mean that we get this sort of interesting takes on on the uh, Arthurian uh, mythos uh, so as I said before you know Stan Hope's 
Sir Gawain meeting the three ladies at the well and uh, Princess Sir Peleus leaving the Lady Etard uh, are quite odd because they're not um, core to the, to the legend. They're quite secondary. Um, you know, they, they don't really gel with the rest of the murals. Um, and as I said, they, they left them unfinished and you ended up with this father and son duo coming in and doing a little bit of a better job. Um, and again, having a slightly different take on the, the Arthurian um, sort of myth. Um, I think the, one of the most interesting things really is how strange the pre-Raphaelite's approach is to the Arthurian myth um, and how the knights take a back seat to the women. Um, there's lots of um, embracing and lots of flowers and foliage and nature. Um, you have women at the center of images uh, with an audience at the side. Um, and these are in you know, quite stark contrast with you know, the battle and the wedding scenes and stuff, which the Rivieres did, uh, which are a bit more of your classic Victoriana. And there's little consistency either. Um, so here we can see there's various depictions of Arthur. Um, you know, he's got completely different faces, completely different styles. Um, it, it keeps things interesting, but it's, it's, it's pretty wild in terms of how, uh, how laissez-faire they were towards the end, bearing that they had this coherent plan to begin with. Um, I think that kind of, you know, metaphorically, it reflects all the different approaches to the myth as well that I think people took a, took a taking to. Um, so one of the things as well, you know, I, I touched on Swinburne being a, a model. Um, you've also got um, Edward Byrne Jones was used as a model for um, Rossetti's Lancelot. And there's a really cool picture here where you can see, you know, the sleeping Lancelot and you've got uh, Byrne Jones himself looking exactly the same. Uh, we had Jane Burden was uh, Guinevere and Burden went on to marry uh, William Morris, uh, just around the corner from the Union, in fact, uh, in St. Michael's Church. Um, and, you know, looking at the women in the murals, again, there's so many of them. I mean, I think there's far more women in these murals than there are men, and they're far more prominent, and there's a real mixture. Um, the the pre-Raphaelites, I should probably say also, they were, they were obsessed with, with women. Um, it's, I think in hindsight, it's almost a little bit creepy. Um, they, they were calling, they're obsessed with calling them stunners. Uh, and they went off to sort of um, have quite incestuous affairs with each other's wives and things. Um, but they have, you know, they didn't shy away from putting women center stage, um, yeah. especially in these murals. Um, so the, sort of the interpretation of the stories is um, quite unique. I think, um, you know, medievalism was massively popular at the time. You know, it's going through a huge Victorian revival. Um, you know, Mort d'Arthur, you know, it's the first time it's been reprinted since, uh, I think, 16, 1634. Um, you know, you had Tennyson, who just sort of published Lady of Shalott, which is obviously heavily influenced by the Arthurian cycle. So that came out in 1832. Um, he then also went on to do Idols of the King uh, between... 1859 and 1885. Um, you know, you've got Wagner over in Europe doing um, Tristan and Isolde, uh, you know, around this period. Um, so there's, there's a real sort of, um, sort, of that sort of cultural zeitgeist, I guess, of the, this renaissance of the Arthurian myth. Um, you know, at least the pre-Raphaelites, they, they took this to heart, you know. Um, we have contemporary accounts of them attempting to kind of live the life that they were portraying. Um, they, they had a lot of sort of affectations in their speech and mannerisms, and you know, they sort of dress in the style 
Morris had a suit of armor commissioned specifically for for the uh, sort of the modeling for these murals. And you can really imagine them sort of um, going around Oxford trying to um, be these sort of Arthurian knights. And you can, you can kind of imagine how uh, slightly horrified, I guess, the establishment of the time might have been seeing these young men uh, going around the place. Um, but there was this sort of collective crusade, I think, against um, what they perceived as the ugliness and the materialism of the sort of the mechanical area around them. Um, and they wanted to bring about sort of a new age of chivalry. And this, this quest for ideal beauty was, was the goal here. Um, and I think they've achieved a little bit of that in these murals. I mean, you can see that they have, um, you know, they are beautiful and they, they've really captured um, something new and quite unique that hadn't really been done before. Um, you know, there aren't any fallen women being rescued by knights. Uh, it often seems to be the opposite, in fact, you know, it's women's who are the ones looking after Arthur, um, you know, ensuring that Excalibur goes back into the lake. Uh, you know, it's Guinevere blocking Lancelot from reaching the Holy Grail because he frankly doesn't deserve it. Um, you know, there's an implication that, you know, even though he loved uh, Guinevere and uh, they had this affair, I think behind that there's kind of an implication that it's it's more that he sinned by loving Guinevere more than God himself um, in, in this depiction of not being able to get to the Holy Grail, which is, you know, quite a challenge to that traditional chivalric um, knight and that sort of perfect Victorian gentleman as well. You know, we saw Nimwi casting Merlin into the, into the well, which is a really sort of powerful image. Um, so, you know, it's sex and sin, I think, seem to be a lot of the topics behind all this um, rather than what, you know, allegiance to king, country, and chivalry. Um, and it's not, you know, nowadays we'd see that's a, a big, big part of Victoriana, but maybe at the time it wasn't so obvious that, you know, sex and sin were at the forefront. Um, so it's, I, I don't know if you've got anything to, to add to that, Caroline, before I sort of wrap up or. Yeah, and this is, this is incredibly interesting to hear because it's so clear from your discussion of these murals how interested they are in these sort of romantic, sexual, and, and sinful aspects of the Arthurian story. And what's so fascinating is the way that sort of authors who end up inspired by this aesthetic pick and choose the bits that they want, right? Tolkien has famously very few women in Middle-earth, and he sort of lifted so much of these kind of medieval aesthetics from the pre-Raphaelites, he was so profoundly inspired by William Morris, but he's sort of completely circumvented their interest in the femme fatale to, to, to think about their interest in nature, a sort of rebellion against industrialization, right? This kind of um, allergy to everything that feels mechanical, industrial, uh, or modern. Um, and it's very interesting to sort of consider how, how they've approached uh these stories with such different angles but with similar values absolutely i mean you can see um you know there's a proto middle earth kind of emerging here um you know you have all these fantastical sort of forest backdrops and lakes and this amazing scenery and you, you can really see that you know that, that would have rubbed off on, on tolkien certainly um it's you know he, he probably would have seen these when they're you know looking at their best as well um so it's yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, um, not even, I suppose, I would say intertextuality going on there, but I, I don't even know how you'd phrase it when it comes to um, things like that. Um, but I mean, you know, 
it was a lifelong passion for um, Morris and Rossetti, this sort of um, Arthuriana. Um, Rossetti himself was, you know, he, he tried to live like, um, like these knights and he himself was something of an art figure. He was, you know, he's a natural leader and he's a talent. He had a talent for gathering people around him. Um, he was flawed. Um, he didn't actually finish a lot of his work, but what he did produce was, was brilliant. Um, and of course, the idea of this ideal beauty and pushing back against industrialization, um, you know, Morris is one of the fans of the arts and crafts movement. And that's, that's pretty much their whole ethos really is, you know, sort of beauty and utility being together. Um, so, I mean, there's the pre-Aphrites and, you know, the wider Victorian things. Um, you know, Arthur proved to be a huge inspiration for all of them. And later work, you know, things like Waterhouse's Lady of Shalott in the Boat. Uh, Holman Hunt also did another Lady of Shalott. Um, Rossetti, you know, was obsessed with the sort of the Holy Grail um, and painted numerous um, different depictions of it. And uh, Burton Jones never really escaped that sort of um, Arthurian world. Like you, you see in a lot of his paintings that he, um, you know, he was fixated on all this stuff. And it's a real theme throughout his life. Um, but one thing I found interesting in actually doing, you know, um, sort of my, my research on this, which admittedly wasn't a deep dive, but it's um, the one thing that did stand out to me was a lot of the information we have actually, uh, you know, as, as to when these murals were produced and the process behind that. A lot of this information comes from Lady Burne Jones, so Edward Burne Jones's wife. I thought that was really sort of a nice way to finish things off. It, it's, it was her records, I think, that really um, enable us to look back and actually glean more information out of this. Um, I mean, obviously, the pre-graphs kept their own records and um, some of them got destroyed over time. And, you know, for them, it was a bit of a laugh, really, that just one summer of um, painting this huge project and going away. But it was Lady Burne Jones who kept all the... Uh, the actual sort of in-depth diary entries and sort of record fondly of that time and sort of gave a different perspective on these guys who are working all this. So I think we owe a lot to her really in terms of, sort of unpicking the history behind all this. Um, so I mean, that's, that's kind of my, my overview of um, the murals. Um, I don't know if you've got any questions or if there's anything you sort of like to add to that or... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a wonderfully thorough and exciting discussion. Um, Thank you. I suppose just sort of as a general question, do we want to kind of hazard a guess as to what Arthuriana kind of meant to these artists? Why, why when given the opportunity, this is, this is where they went? It's, it's a tricky one. I think we, we kind of touched on it on a, on a couple of points in this talk, but it, it is that sort of that idealism I think um, I think there's also an element of um, you know these were quintessentially you know it, it wasn't an, an international movement by any means it's a very um, English approach you know specifically English you know the, the Welsh have their own um, versions of, of all this sort of stuff and so do, sort of Scottish and the Irish but Arthur itself was a very sort of English concept and the pre-rafts were pretty um, pretty English guys by all accounts. Um, so I, I think it is that sort of sense of identity or trying to sort of um, call on the national sort of collective um, consciousness and sort of bring something back that they felt was missing in society. Um, obviously I can't really you know, speak for them definitively or anything like that. 
Um, but I think, you know, it, it does make sense given their ethos of sort of trying to find beauty in things and sort of the age of chivalry. And then you, you have this ready-made figure. Uh, and presumably they've, um, they knew enough about the mist to not actually have to do too much research behind this. And it kind of fitted in with their schedule of, you know, they just had a few months to get it done. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one to answer. Um, and I don't think there is a solid answer. But I think we, we've kind of touched on a few aspects. I don't know if there's any sort of, have you got a, a different take on that? Um, or if there's any uh, different approaches? You know, I think that sounds very sort of intuitively right to me in terms of the context of the period, right? And if you're looking for, if you're looking to, um, you know, sort of move away from the anxieties and pressures of a rapidly changing modern world, and you're looking to sort of move back into the past to to be pre-Raphaelite, right? To sort of reverse time in your art, the first place you're going to look, right? You're going to hunt for the mythology of the place that you're most invested in, right? You're, you're sort of not, and there were all these sort of nationalist movements at the time where there was this big focus on national identity, the discovery of folklore uh, as, as a kind of academic discipline, right? There's sort of an instinct uh, for good or for ill to think back to, you know, what, what is the sort of nearest magic uh, in, in the place that I'm in? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the other thing to kind of bear in mind is that, um, that, that there's nothing, I mean, this is obvious to me because I, you know, I work here and spend a lot of my time in these buildings. There's nothing else in the buildings like this. Um, and there's never any like specific Arthurian um, link to the Oxford Union whatsoever. This is very much the pre-Raphaelites just um, doing their own thing. And quite unusually for the Oxford Union, uh, they just went along with it and said, yep, you can, you can go for it, guys. Um, go wild. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic what they managed to produce. Um, it's totally unique. It's, it's really an amazing space to be in. Uh, you often forget just how beautiful it can be. Um, mm -hmm. So this is sort of an otherworldly space in the context of the union buildings. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, pure escapism, I think. Yeah, so they've kind of constructed their own medieval hall with the with the uh, wall paintings sort of serving the function of tapestries even. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's the original configuration. I mean, you can see in this slide here that the room is just full of books, but that ground floor would have been the, um, would have been open as a space for debating. So you would have just had great big tables and benches making it feel all the more medieval, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it would have been, well, I mean, it still is a fantastic space and yeah. And a complete escape as all libraries should be i think <laughs> yes i agree uh well that seems like it might be as good a note as any to end on um is there anything else that you think uh our audiences ought to know about these murals about the union library about it as a space um nothing in particular obviously i'd encourage everyone to uh to join i have to say that uh, so you can make use of the space. Uh, but it is also worth noting that, you know, if, if people would like to come and visit this, the, the library, um, you don't have to be a member of the union itself. Um, you can just get in touch with the library team and we'll happily show people around as well. Um, we love showing the space off. Um, as you can see, it's just a, it's a pretty magical place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd say thank you for having me and, and thank you. Thank you for your time as well. Thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot. I think our audiences have as well, and we're very grateful for your expertise.
Brilliant. Thank you.